As we enter the service of the word, let us pray. Father, thank you for your written word, which reveals to us the living word in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him has been revealed all wisdom and grace, all knowledge and understanding, all truth and hope, all light and life. In his name we pray. Amen. A gospel reading from Matthew, chapter 6, verse 9. The gospel of the Lord. And when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. Figure since we're intimate, I'd just uh, go like old times and preach from the floor. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, told us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That hallowed be your name is, is not a description saying that God's name is hallowed or holy. It's actually the first petition, the first request of the Lord's prayer is that God's name would be treated as something that is holy. And so we're going to look at a passage which talks about that. It's the sixth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm going to read the first eight verses. This is God's word. If you want to uh, listen along. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory." And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of, of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar and with it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. What do we see here? What we see here, first of all, is a God whose name is is holy. And you look at what Isaiah sees in the temple. There are these sets of, of these, these seraphim, these angelic creatures, and each one has three pair of wings. And with, with one pair, they cover their eyes because no one can look upon God and live. And with one set of wings, they're covering their feet, or it's it's not clear in in in, in the Hebrew, feet is, is often in Hebrew a euphemism for, for genitalia. We don't know. I don't know anything about, you know, how an, what an angel looks like, but they're covering up their shame. Even if it's feet, they're covering up their feet. Like when Moses saw God in a burning bush, a theophany, and, and the, and the voice cried out and said, Moses, cover up your feet, for this is what? Holy ground. And they're crying out to one another 
over and over and over again of the holiness of God. There are two words, there are two meanings that the term holy can have. You know, in, in English, we, we primarily use it to mean clean or, or righteous or good as opposed to evil. And that, that's in Hebrew kind of a secondary meaning, but the primary meaning in Hebrew is, is otherness. That this is, this is a being that is, is, is totally other, wholly other, unlike us. The opposite of holy is common. And this is a God who is not common, but, but radically different from us. And they're crying it out, and they're crying it out in repetition. They're saying not just holy, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and in Hebrew, that's a means of, of emphasizing something. If, if I wanted to emphasize something, you know, in English, you know, if I'm sending you a message, an email, and I want to emphasize something, what am I going to do? I'm putting it in all caps. I'm going to yell at you. This is really important! Or I'm going to, or I'm going to underline it. Or I'm going to put it in bold print. Yet, there, there are ways we emphasize stuff. In, 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 in American, we just get really loud. Or we can get, if you're a counselor, and you really want to emphasize something, what do you do? It's $100 an hour for this trick. This is really important. They lean in. Dan Zink whispers, freaky. Uh, but there are all sorts of ways we can emphasize these things, even $100 an hour. But in Hebrew, they emphasize through repetition. Uh, it's why there are all of those all of those proverbs that say one thing and then say the exact same thing again. It's emphasis saying it a little differently, maybe. It's in, in Hebrew poetry, uh, you know, the, the way that you have the, the, this constant repetition of saying something and saying it again. Uh, and, 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 and it's why you see, you know, when, when, when David loses Absalom, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom, such massive grief he feels. It's when Jesus is mourning over the loss of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to come to you with all of this grace, but you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't listen. You weren't willing. Uh, you know, we see this, this, this pattern of repetition in order to make something. Jesus, when he really wants to tell you that what he's saying isn't, isn't the lie, I'm not making this up, this is really true. What does he say? Truly Truly, I say to you, or if you're King James English, verily, verily, I say unto thee. And what do we see here as the background music of heaven? But not one, but twice, not twice, but three times, the trishagion, holy, 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 infinite emphasis, infinite stressing on how how majestic and other God is that you're experiencing something in the throne room of God that is unlike anything else in all the cosmos or beyond. It is unique. It is holy other. It is triple emphasized. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they repeat it again. And they repeat it again. And they repeat it again. And they say it again and again and again. For a hundred trillion years from eternity to eternity, the background music of heaven going on throughout history, continually crying out of the otherness of God. And then you see the trail of His robe that symbolizing his majesty and it fills the temple. You think of, of some princess in, a, in an abbey somewhere in the UK getting married and, and because she's so majestic and so holy as a princess, royalty, all oh, tabloids love it. Her trail of her robe goes all the way down the center aisle, right out the narthex onto the street. And God's infinite majesty, so endless, so overwhelming, the trail of his robe heaps up. It goes to every corner of the floor. It heaps up, up to the rafters. The, tr the, the, the train of his robe is filling the temple. You think of how majestic this is. You know, I remember, you know, flying to Nicaragua once and, 
and on the flight it was I was I deliberately picked the left window because I wanted to get the sunrise and and as you begin to see the sun tip over the edge you, you're so high up you can see the the arch of the earth the arc of the horizon and then you see over that horizon the sun start to pop up and you realize at that moment I'm sitting here watching this and realizing this is so far away and yet we are on a ball and we are slowly rotating toward this thing right now and and not only that but I'm sitting here thinking and as far as I am away from that sun right now that I am looking at us rotating toward we are also circling around it and in 180 days we will be as far from it on the other side as we are right now and I'm sitting here seeing the dance of the cosmos of the planets and the stars all in order all in a majestic beautiful massive thing and I think what kind of God what kind of intelligence would hold this in his hand how infinite is he? How big is he to know what's going on, to sustain this whole thing? It's, it's massive. The, the observable universe is, is a flat disk 93 billion light years across, and, and it's growing. And, and the entire universe, by mathematical models, might be as much as 250 times that large, and yet it has a bound. It has an edge. There's a place where time and space stops. God is beyond all of that. How massive. What, yeah, when we're talking about God, folks, we speak from a position of, of limited knowledge, absolute epistemological humility. The real God has stepped down into this cosmos to reveal himself to us in his son, and he's broken into this world, and yet everything we know, everything he has revealed to us in scripture, in history, it's like a cup of water. And God is a vast ocean. We barely know what we're dealing with when we speak about God, this being, this intelligence, so infinite, so holy, so unlike us. We could never comprehend him. We can only apprehend what he's revealed to him. And he's shown himself to be holy and yet good in that holiness, a blazing, fiery love and justice and mercy and goodness. And it's terrifying. You know, I'm often, if you know my vacation habits, I'm often on top of a cliff preferably in an infinity pool with a drink in my hand and it's going over the edge. But I have I travel with friends. Uh, oh, they really love cliffs. And uh, the thing about a cliff is it draws you to it. You see this edge over here and you're just like, you're sucked to it. i got to go up to the edge. I have to look over the edge because it's beautiful. And I'm sitting here back there saying, Steve, don't do it. You're going to die. You got the rental car. I'm not on that contract. And there's this attraction to beauty and, and yet also a fear when something so big, so vast, you know, Aslan is not a safe lion. He is a good lion. Infinite, powerful, holy, beautiful, loving, scary. Oh, to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Psalm 96, the whole earth is full of his glory. We see his beauty, his majesty, the fingerprints of an infinite beauty everywhere we look. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, his very first commandment in terms of instructing us how to pray is he says, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Meaning, may your name be treated not as common, but as holy. Oh, that we cry to God our Father, asking him, to make his name great in the eyes of all the world. God, I don't 
I don't want your name to be treated lightly, Father. I don't want your name used as a common swear word, Father. I want all the nations to praise you, Father. I want my friends, my neighbors, my associates, my family members to bow down before you and honor and praise your name as one who is infinite in holiness, majestic in your praises, to give you the reverence that's due you because, God, you are beautiful in your holiness. Humans are like moths drawn to a flame, realizing the flame does have danger. And so what happens when Isaiah sees the holiness of God? What we see is that encountering a holy God actually undoes us. It's the term he cries a curse down on himself. He says, woe is me on seeing God. I am ruined. No one can see God and live. Even the angels are wise enough to cover their faces to the, the, the unveiled glory of the Lord. And Isaiah is describing his absolute sense of being undone, of being unraveled. The term is, is it's like saying, I am disintegrating. I am un, being unraveled like a carpet. Uh, it's the horror of realizing his finitude and his own sin. He's aware of, of the sin of his lips as a prophet. And I can say this as a, as a pastor. I'm not a prophet, but I am a pastor. And God's word is often on my mouth. And, uh, and when I think of my sin, it's, it's what I think of more than anything else is the things I say uh, under my breath when people cut me off in traffic, you know, because these lips, they, they can praise God one minute and curse man in his image the next. And that's what's convicting Isaiah. Uh, you know, when dealing with, with, with the God of the Bible, there is a fear of God that's appropriate. Um, a religion without that kind of fear is, is not really Christian. It's, it's, there's certainly an unhealthy fear of God. The fear of, of, you know, a child who runs and hides in their closet when daddy comes home, that's an unhealthy fear. That's fear of evil. The child that puts their hand up whenever their mother raises their hand, uh, that's the fear of abuse. But this is the fear of something that we can't control, that is absolutely good, absolutely pure, absolutely loving, and absolutely infinite and, and kind of scary, like walking up to the edge of a cliff. Uh, He's self-existent. He's a God who fuels the stars in a billion galaxies a billion light years away and yet also lives with him who is of a humble and contrite heart. Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. And, and it's exactly how, this isn't an Old Testament thing, it's how people responded to Jesus whenever, whenever he showed his, his glory. Uh, you know, you remember when, when Peter, you, the miracle with all the fish, Peter throws down the net, gets up massive amounts of fish, and what does he say? Oh, thank you, Jesus. This is setting me up for a reason. He says, get away from me, Lord. I am an unclean man. You remember when, when Jesus was in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and the big storm happens and their waves are going everywhere. They're all going to die and they know it. Waves are going over top of the boat and they're, they're afraid and they wake up Jesus. They say, Jesus, wake up. Do you want it? Don't you care if we die? And Jesus wakes up and he says, peace, be still. And immediately, it's not just that the storm stops, all the kinetic energy out of that entire body of water dissipates and goes somewhere. We have no idea. This is a total miracle, and the water is flat as glass. It's like a mirror. And it says that the people who were scared, it says, and then they were terrified. It's like, uh, you know, if you ever go up the, the Alton to like Pear Marquette State Park, you go down Great River Road and you go up. Anybody been on top of Mount Adams? Mount Adams, that's the hill behind Pear Marquette, one of the highest peaks in the state of Illinois. Uh, it's it's a, a river bluff a um, couple hundred feet up. But, but you go up there and you can see this vast distance. You can see Clayton skyline with a little pointy top building in the distance. And even beyond that, you can see downtown St. Louis on the horizon with a little tiny loop 
so you can pick it up like it's a you know, movable piece. And uh, if you can imagine, you get a new friend from work, and you all go up there, you hike up to the top of Mount Adams, you're looking at that, and he looks at you and he says, you, you like being up high like this, don't you? And it's like, yeah, I love it. I love being able to see the view is amazing. He says, well, look at this. And then he raises his hands and he says something in like maybe Hebrew or Greek or maybe it's Latin, not really sure. It, it ain't English or Spanglish. It's something different. And uh, and he's he says something and he raises his, his hands up and then suddenly you can feel the earth beneath you rising and you start going up and the mountain is getting higher and higher and suddenly you're in the, the upper stratosphere. You're higher than K2. The air is so thin you can barely breathe. You're getting out altitude sickness and you look down and below you are all the kingdoms of the world and you look at your friend and you see in his eyes the spiral of the galaxies going around in his eyes and then he smiles at you he puts it all back and you've got to come up with a decision you've got to decide this do you get back in the car with him that's jesus that's the trauma of encountering the holiness of christ um it's like even at the transfiguration when Jesus shines with the glory on top of the mountain like Moses and he's discussing with Moses about his departure, his exodus, and, uh, and, and they see Jesus shining in the glory of God. And their first thought, it, it, the modern translations say, oh, should we build a tent for you? That's not the term. The term is tabernacle. Because the thing is, if you see the glory of God, you're going to die. And what they're thinking is, we're seeing the glory of God. And we got to get a containment vessel over this thing before we all perish. It was the miracle that they saw his glory and lived. Uh, it's the same thing we see. Woe is me, I am ruined. Uh, and yet what we also see in this passage is a holy God who clothes us in his own holiness. It's in verse 6 and 7 cries out, I am ruined. He's aware of, aware of his sin. He's aware of the sins of his people. All the ways were so much less than the best of humanity. And yet then what happens? Then one of the seraphs flew to me, he says, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's remarkable. God himself takes responsibility for Isaiah's sin, for Isaiah's failings, for Isaiah's shame. God himself takes responsibility and God himself provides the solution so that he could stand before a holy God and live. All of this is part of a larger narrative. You know, ultimately, you know, can a coal off an altar really atone for sin? Ultimately, no, this is a part of a larger narrative. Somebody has to die on that altar in order to atone for our sins. And that's what we see here when when we look forward to Jesus, the one who comes to make all of this and the fullness of all of this, the one who comes from the father, full of life and light, the one who is the image of the invisible God, God in the flesh, the one who stepped into eternity, taking on our nature that he might redeem our nature. What he does is he takes our guilt. You know, there, there are a lot of ways the Bible talks about our our salvation. There, there are multiple uh, uh, descriptors, you know, dozens, and yet one of those is the notion of atonement, that God himself takes responsibility for our sins and makes Jesus himself the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the, the Hebrew scriptures, the way it happened is you went to the temple of the Lord. You offered a sacrifice in your place. You would place your hands upon that animal. Your guilt would symbolically transfer from yourself to that animal. That animal would then be slain. It would have its neck cut. It would be destroyed. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, it would be run out of town as the scapegoat. 
that takes your shame, takes your guilt, so that you bear it no more. Christ has borne it in your place. Uh, that's the beauty of the atonement, that God made him who had no sin, Second Corinthians 5, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, cut off from the Father, on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It was not a rhetorical question. The answer is he was forsaken for your sake. So that if you have Jesus, you will never be forsaken by God the Father. Because your sin is forgiven. Your guilt is atoned for. Did the Father really reject his Son on the cross? Yes. And because of that, he'll never reject you. There is no double jeopardy in the kingdom of heaven. No sin gets punished twice. If Christ has borne your sin in his body on the tree, then you will not bear it. You bear it no longer. Jesus has taken the cup of God's wrath and he has drunk it all the way down to the dregs because the Father loved you and gave up his son so that you could be redeemed. And friends, that is only half of the story because the other half is what Isaiah himself says back in, in chapter, I believe it's 61, where he says, that, that you, Lord, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And the bride, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as the bride adorns herself with jewels, that God himself, even in the Old Testament, would take God's own righteousness and clothe us who in our nakedness have no righteousness of our own. Even in Isaiah, your guilt is atoned for, yes, but you're also clothed so that you're not naked. You're not shameful anymore. In your Father's eyes, He has clothed you with His eyes and you were adorned in glory and splendor. Christ's righteousness credited to you the righteousness of God like the prodigal son who comes home full of shame and yet the Father puts His royal robe on His back, elevating Him to a position of glory, takes His family signet ring off His own finger and puts it on His Son and blesses Him and slays the fatted calf, celebrating the fact that in Jesus you are worthy because Christ was worthy for you. Forgiveness says you can go now. But righteousness says you can come. And in Christ, we have not only atonement, but the righteous robes of God's own righteousness clothing us. A Father who delights in you as a Father delights in a Son. Back to Isaiah 40. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms. He carries them close to His heart. And He gently leads those that have young. A holy God. Total other who clothes us with His own holiness, a holiness we didn't deserve, as a blessing of salvation, what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, clothes us because He loves us, because He knows us, and He doesn't want our shame exposed. Some of you have heard, uh, some of you will remember uh, Walter Wangren's favored story about the ragman. He writes this, he says, I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life. My street sense, my sly tongue had never prepared me for this. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell you. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our fair city. 
He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now this is a wonder. I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four. His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in the inner city? And so I followed him. My curiosity drove me. I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X shape. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking, and the ragman stopped his cart, and quietly he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans and dead toys and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shone. She blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done. His shoulders were shaking and yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out of black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. And now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood. His own blood. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy, sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket flat, the cuff stuffed into his pocket. The man had no arm. So, the ragman said, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. And so much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work now, he said. And after that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, and sick. He took the blanket, he wrapped it around himself, but for the the drunk he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman. 
Though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehand, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next until he came to its limit, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so? The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And I waited to help him in what he did, but I, I hung back and hid. He climbed a hill, and with tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. And then he sighed, and he laid down, and he pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket, and he covered his bones with the army blanket, and there he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died, and I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. I did not know. How could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too? Then on Sunday morning, he says, I was wakened by a violence, light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face. And I blinked and I looked and I saw the, the wonder of it all. There was the ragman again, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow, no sign of age. All of the rags that he had gathered shined for their cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen. I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. I took off my clothes in that place and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. And he dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman the ragman, my Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son, whom you have given for us and for our salvation. Lord, we bless you. We praise your name because of your great salvation. And we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you might minister your good news to us. We pray through Christ our Lord, whom we worship together with you in the unity of your Holy Spirit. Amen.